This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. The trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd is over. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to count one, Unintentional second-degree murder will matter as to count two. Third-degree murder perpetrating an eminent as to count three. Second-degree manslaughter. Find the defendant guilty. 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 There was celebration and relief. And reminders that this isn't an end. It's just the beginning. I would not call today's verdict justice, however, because justice implies true restoration. But it is accountability, which is the first step towards justice. We need a justice system that reflects the crime that people do, uh, that works for black people like it does for all other people in this country. It's the work we do every day to change hearts and minds as well as laws and policies. That's the work we have to do. Only then will full justice and full equality be delivered to all Americans. After the verdict, Floyd's family called on the U.S. Senate to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Among other things, the bill would limit qualified immunity, a type of legal immunity that protects police officers and other public officials from being held liable for constitutional violations. Every year, police in the U.S. kill around 1,000 citizens. Even if we throw out an arbitrary number and say, eight out of every 10 of those killings are, sadly, justified, that would mean that 200 people are needlessly killed by cops each year. Again, we don't know how many of these police killings are truly justified. It could be less, it could be more, but it leads to a bigger question. How do we make it stop? Joining us now to answer that question is Echo Yanka. He's a professor at Cardozo School of Law in New York, and he focuses on criminal justice, policing, and police brutality. Professor Yanka, welcome. Thanks for having me back. Also with us is Duchess Harris. She's professor of American Studies at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. She's author of several books on race in America, including Race and Policing and The Killing of George Floyd. Hi, Professor Harris. Welcome back. It's great to be here. I will start with you, Professor Harris, because you are talking to us from the Twin Cities right now. Tell us the mood in St. Paul and in Minneapolis. There are so many emotions here. It is difficult to even describe what the tone and tenor is. Yesterday was incredibly intense. The hour where we knew that we were going to get the verdict until it actually happened was just indescribable. We'll see what what happens when sentencing takes place in in about eight weeks. But there was certainly a lot of celebration about this verdict from people, especially black people, who saw the decision as 
some sense of hope and a step in the right direction. It really felt that way for a lot of us because there was so much concern that there could have been a different outcome. And as brilliant as Jerry Blackwell was and that entire team, there still was just this trepidation under the surface. What if, just what if one juror doesn't see it the way the prosecution has presented it? Yet, Professor Harris, the the officers who shot and killed Breonna Taylor, they're walking free, as do many other officers who have killed on the job. Uh, Yesterday in Columbus, Ohio, just minutes before this verdict in the Chauvin trial, police shot and killed a 16-year-old, Micaiah Bryant. She was reportedly the one who had called 911 for help. So we have a long way to go. Yeah. I mean, that's it. And so some people would say, well, of course he was convicted. It was cut and dry. And for people who are familiar with these cases and live in these communities and have these experiences, we know that what's cut and dry for some of us isn't for others. Professor Yanka, what was running through your mind just before that verdict was read? Just before? um, I agree. I think it was a stunning case. It seemed like a straightforward case. I mean, in lots of ways, legally, it's not a very interesting case. The thing that made it interesting, the thing that made it difficult was... um, we know he's wearing police officer's uniform, and we know case after case. Um, look, I remember a video of Walter Scott being shot down by Michael Slager in North Carolina, um, and Michael Slager's planting what looked like a taser next to him, and that jury came back deadlocked. People forget that Slager was only convicted after a jury trial, after it was retried. So... There was this trepidation, even though your your head knows it's an easy case, your heart still still was trembling. Well, what happened yesterday, it hasn't happened at all many times, you know, in this country. So with it being so rare um, for police officers to be found guilty in these police shootings, can you just remind us of some of the main reasons why police aren't typically punished when they kill citizens? that they're supposed to be serving and protecting, Professor Yanka? You know, there are a few reasons, but the core of the reason is that people don't want to convict police officers. Prosecutors don't want to prosecute them, and, and juries don't want to convict them. One of the things we saw in the Chauvin case was a masterful prosecution, but that should also throw into stark relief how many prosecutions and even grand jury presentations even when we don't see them, we, we know they must have been uh, passing and weak because prosecutors have such immense power and discretion in how to put these cases on. And frankly, jurors just want to believe police officers when they testify. So police officers can say, you know, I had to make a split second decision. It was a dangerous neighborhood, high crime area. And it took an extraordinary confluence of events, us seeing it with our own eyes, to denude uh, Derek Chauvin of those kind of defenses. Last summer, uh, just a couple of weeks after George Floyd was killed, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear cases that seek to reconsider the doctrine of qualified immunity. So can you just tell us more about what qualified immunity actually is and what it would take to change it? 
Sure. It's extraordinary because it's not found anywhere, particularly in the law, except for on the pen of judges, right? So qualified immunity is very much judicially created enterprise. And what it says is, in order for you to be held liable for a violation of my constitutional rights, you have to have known you were violating my constitutional rights. Well, how would you know that? Well, a court has to have ruled that the thing you're doing was a violation of my constitutional rights. But by now, the interpretation has become almost mind-boggling. What it really turns out to mean in the judicial landscape is some other court has to have ruled that this thing you're doing right now is illegal, right? So that if I do something utterly outrageous as a police officer, the fact that I can look around and say, well, no other police officers killed somebody in just this way and have that ruled illegal means that I didn't know I was violating your civil rights and thus I have qualified immunity and I can't be sued and be made to pay you for that harm. All that being said, I sometimes think we overly focus on qualified immunity. I think it's really important. It's a statement about accountability. It's a statement about how we treat officers. And it's a statement about nobody being above the law. But if a police officer is willing to kill somebody knowing that in fact, they're going to be immune from civil prosecution, excuse me, criminal prosecution, they're not gonna be yeah. thrown in jail. It's not like it's the potential tort liability down the road that's going to stop them, right? If people remember back to the OJ Simpson case, our heart and soul was not in whether or not OJ Simpson would have to pay damages for Nicole Brown Smith's death. It's important and it's a measure of justice to the family, but that's not how we fundamentally, in my mind, reform policing. Professor Harris, you're, you're teaching a class right now called Race and the Law. How have you been talking to your students about the Chauvin trial? Well, yesterday was surreal because we meet 3.15 to 4.30 Central Time, and we found out that the verdict was going to come during class time. And so our college president had said that classes could be canceled for people to watch the verdict, but I almost had perfect attendance because my students wanted to watch it with each other and with me. And so we did it on Zoom and watched it unfold. And it was just an amazing experience to see young people process what was unfolding because we've been studying this the entire unit. And um, also many of them had been protesting in Brooklyn Center around Dante Wright. I had students that um, had been hit by rubber pellets that had been around Mace that had to jump a fence to get away from the police. And so I think this was probably one of the most informative experiences of their lives yeah. so far. Professor Harris, when we talked to you at the outset of this trial, you said that George Floyd's story and his murder is about every public policy issue we have. I think you were you were trying to say, you know, sometimes society's problems, like the prevalence of police shooting, for instance, they can feel so big and so impossible to change. So I, I really liked your analysis because it, it sort of got me thinking that if we start to break down these big problems and we address various pieces of the puzzle, maybe just, maybe we can start to see some change. I mean, exactly. I mean, I bring up these public policy issues because if we could address employment law, 
right, we would be able to understand why Mr. Floyd was precariously employed, you know, why it was a possibility that he had a counterfeit bill at Cup Foods. And so that's one angle of this. The way that he had access to health care continuously because he had survived COVID and what that means, what his housing has been throughout his life. All of these issues lead to a moment that he unfortunately faced the way many others in our country face. Professor Yanka, it's easy for us to talk about the problems, but but here on this show, on, on Reset, we always like to focus on solutions. So do you think the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, if, if it's passed, do you think it could help reduce these police shootings? You know, like so many things the federal government does, what it can do is establish best practices, and it can change our nation's eyes to what we're aiming for, right? It can start to make us think about what the goal of great policing and equitable policing should be. But because you invite the question of solutions, which is the right question, we have to stop, you know, to borrow the line from Shakespeare, we have to stop staring into the sun, right? I mean, Washington always attracts our attention. The presidency has this grandeur. But policing is so local. Indeed, in law school, when we teach local powers, we call them the police powers. Any local powers are called the police powers because the archetypal local power is policing power, right? So the police chief in some small town just outside Chicago has a police force of five. Chicago has thousands. New York has thousands. It's changing on the ground there. It's people petitioning their mayor, their local police chief fighting against sometimes the overwhelming police union powers. If we want solutions, we can't look far away. We have to look at our communities and really mobilize one by one in those communities. But Professor Harris, the, the journey ahead isn't, isn't just about, quote unquote, solving this problem of police violence, right? We also need to heal as individuals yeah. and, and as a country. So do you think that this verdict helps? And I wonder if you felt any sense of healing yesterday when the verdict came down. I definitely felt a sense of healing. It's a verdict that I wanted so badly for people in the Twin Cities area. And I think that many of us are in that process. But this is just the beginning. For those of us who live in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area and what we have experienced since last Memorial Day, We know, I mean, just as um, the professor is saying, the the locality of policing, we know the journey that we will continue to have to endeavor. I I know I felt a sense of joy initially, and then it just quickly turned back to sadness for me. What about you, Professor Yanka? You know, it it hit me much harder than I thought. between us, I was tearing up. I was just really a bit shaken. You know, it's your job to teach these things and to try to look for solutions and explain these things as a law professor. Um, but, you know, I'm also a father, and I was desperately thinking of what I would tell my boys if um, Chauvin wasn't convicted. My boys are very young, but they, like children everywhere, know what's happening and, and have been looking at this. And, I, you know, ultimately, I just thought 
law professor's side, you you just can't crush a black man under your knee like that and have us ignore it. it we just there has to be a line where um, we're not thinking as though it were a dispassionate question of legal liability. This was just the most contemptuous murder videotaped. And so I just thought, thank God, at least this. Yeah. The jury believed their eyes, like the prosecution told them to. We've been talking with Echo Yanka from Cardozo School of Law and Duchess Harris from McAllister College. Professors, thank you so much. For more great conversations around policing and criminal justice reform, go to wbez.org slash reset and take 30 seconds to give this podcast a rating and review. It really helps other people find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and we will meet again tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.